The concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has always correlated with climatic changes. It has been added by geological processes and removed by the responses of the biosphere to those processes. Um, we are doing the opposite now, which is unusual in, in the history of the planet. Hey, it's Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. Oh, I'm Patrick. Bam. Uh, welcome back for another Hang in the Laboratory. We got a guest this week. Uh, you just heard Patrick Meller. Thanks for joining us. And special thanks, as always, to our backers who, or I, we have to call them supporters because I changed it. Uh, our supporters who throw us as little as a buck a month to help keep this thing going. Uh, to jump in over there, you can go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com. Dot com. And thanks to uh, Patrick for joining us. Uh, you you were, you're our first referral from a listener that wasn't like a buddy from high school that went, hey, I know somebody <laughs> you should talk to. <laughs> so we got to give a shout out to Dean for uh, sending you our way. Yeah, thanks, Dean. Um, thanks for listening too. Right. Thank you, Dean. Definitely. <laughs> uh, but at this point, do you, you want to talk about your background a little bit? Dean's 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 email was basically like everything that he can talk about literally anything you want to talk about <laughs> that you guys talk about in your podcast. I was like, that sounds like a pretty good guest. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> I'm confident from the 20 minutes we've been talking that that Dean's assessment is accurate. So I um, I'm very interested in anything to do with the history of life um and uh the long-term history of the biosphere in general right now i am uh working in philosophy of mind on evolution of memory um which is uh not completely connected but is has quite a lot of uh of definite definite connections i have worked on the history of uh, uh shrimp basically shrimp in the mediterranean basin and how that is uh useful as a way of working out the times when that basin uh, dried up and refilled and the relationship between the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean because they were connected at one point. <laughs> Shrimp is one thing. Um, uh, also, the ecology of the California desert, oh, I'm very interested in. Um, yes. uh, and Dean found you because of a blog post that uh, we will link to. But then a blog post that you also have said like, oh, there's a bunch of stats cut out of there. We were all like, we were immediately like, oh, great. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I missed the full, I missed the full length article you sent over. I'm excited to read that. I can, I can see why they had to cut oh, it yes, down yeah, some. I would. <laughs> but, it's a lot more granular. I think that would be the word. Uh, do you want to kind of give us the, like the, the, the quick overview on what was in the article maybe to kind of frame where we're going from here? Yes. So we have a big problem with climate change. Um, I think that we would do better in working out how to deal with that problem if we had more of an understanding of paleobiology and the ways that what we are doing now um, are analogous to various mm. geological events and um well, there's both physical geological events and also the responses of the biosphere to those events. I think that that would help us integrate ourselves conceptually with the rest of the biosphere. 
and that by doing this, um, we would make better decisions. I also think that we need to talk seriously about active carbon drawdown and that there are no solutions to our current problem that do not involve that. But it still is um, similar to, say, a third rail would be the expression, right? That it's something mm. that can only be touched very carefully and perhaps with a long pole and um, only in ways that can be, <laughs> yeah, cloaked as being something other than geoengineering, which is the term often used. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I was going to say, so I feel like the thing to, to hit before we can kind of get to the, the, what feels to me like the fun stuff, like the question, like there's a question of, it's almost a philosophical question of like, we have this climate problem. What are acceptable solutions to the problem? Um, but I think maybe the, the, the place to sort of start is more like what, what's, just sort of on the baseline level of, hey, carbon does this. On When you think of it on a geological timescale, what is happening that's causing the problem? Yeah, what's the story of carbon over the history of our planet, I think, is the, is the interesting place where I don't think we've really had that conversation in depth before. Yes. So um, if I go all the way back, if we go all the way back to the beginning, <laughs> which this story will have to start at the beginning... <laughs> um, so the, the, uh, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has always correlated with climatic changes. And in general, it has been added by geological processes and removed by the responses of the biosphere to those processes. Mm. Um, we are doing mm. the opposite now, which is unusual in, in the history of the planet. Normally it has been the other way around. Be um, and uh, the concentration of oxygen in the atmosphere has uh, varied a lot. Right now, it is um, about 20%. It has been up to 35%, um, say, in the Carboniferous period, a bit over 200 million years ago. On the very, very long term, the concentration of carbon dioxide is decreasing because there's a slight imbalance between uh, the extraction um, by processes like weathering and the return of CO2 to the atmosphere from the biosphere. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so certainly the climate has never been particularly stable and uh, the composition of the atmosphere has shifted a lot. Photosynthesis, um, of course, removes CO2 from the atmosphere, right? And respiration and other processes uh, add it. Um, so do massive volcanic eruptions. So there have been a whole lot of uh, events that have happened involving mass additions and removals of carbon from the atmosphere. Yeah, it's interesting the way you... Uh... The first piece you said about how historically uh, carbon uh, has been added by natural processes yes. uh, and then removed by biological processes, yes. uh, which, and then you said, but now that's not what we're doing. I've never quite heard it described that way. And that, that's a very interesting way to put it. And, and I guess it's, it can be confusing to say natural processes because I think a lot of people think of animals as natural processes, which is a reasonable uh, animals and plants as natural um, which is reasonable, but, uh, so if we go way, way back, there was a period on earth 
for a, a long time. Uh, maybe you can't even call it Earth at the time, but when the planet was forming mm-hmm. and the atmosphere was being created, right, by the by by the a conglomeration of things that came together to make the planet. Um, so at that point, there was kind of like a creation of atmosphere. Did that just stabilize? As at some point it stabilized before there was life, there was just sort of an atmosphere that was hanging out, and there was no way for it to change because there weren't there weren't plants, there weren't animals. Yeah, suddenly that atmosphere did not contain significant quantities of oxygen, and it also contained a whole lot of methane. And then there was a there was a uh, so there's a really neat uh, show that I bring up a lot. Uh, I don't know if anyone ever goes and watches it, but uh, it was called uh, it was a BBC special called Power of the Planet. Um, and it's a five episode series, uh, that is kind of like planet earth, but instead of being about the creatures, it's actually about the planet. And it's exactly this topic. It is, it's the first thing I ever saw educationally for me that really put geological timeframes into my conscious understanding of what's going on in the world. And I watched it a bunch of times back to back because it was so different than anything I had ever really been able to grasp the way I was taught about stuff. And I'm sure we I'm sure there was time in my education when we talked about geological timeframes, but this totally shifted my perspective. And then fast forward to just like three years ago, I read a book uh, uh, called Earth. Uh, it's a, it was a small book uh, summarizing Earth system science. And it's exactly a cycling of basic uh, like organic chemicals in our atmosphere and our and, and uh, in our in our biome, basically. And that's that was the point when I something clicked for me and I realized, oh, my God, I get what's Mm -hmm. going on with climate change. And the problem is literally the entire system. Every single thing that exists on Earth is part of the of what's going on. And to alter that for something about starting to understand the geological scale of it, I realized how big a challenge it was and how big a potential problem it was. And you're totally right. There's there's something there's a piece missing in in people's education and people's understanding. Uh, and it's such an interesting space. Yes. Yes. So I'm curious to dig in uh, real quick on the details of the uh, the Mediterranean, the study you were talking about with the shrimp. Oh, yes. Uh, in the in the Mediterranean, like I, just I'll let you present kind of the where you got with it because it's fun to talk about. But I think it's an interesting way to frame like. Uh, talk about what you researched there to get to the point of realizing, oh, this is this is pretty different from what I would have guessed by looking at this thing <laughs> like yesterday. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, <Stuck> shrimp. <laughs> so shrimp. Okay, okay. So um, the distribution of shrimp in the Mediterranean is related to the distribution of shrimp in the Indian Ocean. Hmm. Um, there are some species that um, uh, are common to the two seas. But a lot of these species are present in the two seas because we made the Zuez Canal, Hmm. right? So when we made the Zuez Canal, a bunch of crustaceans moved across through the Red Sea. So the research I was doing was trying to delineate the different shrimp that were already there from the ones that went in there when when Zuez was made. Hmm. Right, which no one. I mean, that that's. I was working with someone called um, Sammy de Grave at the time um, in Oxford, um, and he. Uh, uh, the, this is his project. I was helping him with this project, hmm. right? Um, and um, 
the evolutionary relationships between the shrimp in the uh, Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean Ocean, um, the degree of relatedness are dependent on are dependent on the time frame of separation of the two basins. And once you take out the Zuez uh, shrimp, then we can work out based on divergence times how long those have been separated and how long the Mediterranean shrimp have had to uh, diverge evolutionarily. And that will help to provide some guidelines as to how long the Mediterranean has been similar to the properties it has now. Hmm. And are you doing that as a model, like as a, to find the differentiating data point? Are you analyzing like fossil records or it's, it's a, well, it's a matter of species, right? So are you actually chasing that? Like, this is a different species of shrimp that shouldn't be here. And then now they are. And so you can figure out where on the sort of geological time scale you're hitting a point where the canal doesn't exist anymore. Cause these two genus of shrimp have like diverged. Basically. Yes, yes. So basically, um, if you find two species that are the same in both basins, um, uh, and there's no difference between them, it's quite likely that they moved in through Zuez because um, those two seas have been isolated for quite a while. I mean, so that's geoengineering. <laughs> Zuez is geoengineering to an extent, yes. Right. There were worse We think of it as transportation, <laughs> but that is what it is. <laughs> there were worse projects involving the Mediterranean. Um that yeah. luckily didn't happen. There, there was a project in the 1930s called Atlantropa, um, and the aim of that was to uh, create a whole bunch of hydropower by damming Gibraltar. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> this would have been a bad idea for many reasons. <laughs> um, and the interesting part is, um, in the Miocene period, well, the Mycenaean, actually, um, which is a division of that, which is about 10 million years ago. And possibly repeatedly, it may have happened up to 5 million years ago. We're not completely sure. But um, the Mediterranean uh, uh, dried up because um, Gibraltar formed a natural dam uh, at that point. Um, and the way that the uh, continents shifted... Um, uh, led to that channel, which is still very narrow right now, entirely closing up. Um, and when this happened, the entire sea desiccated pretty quickly in a matter of like about a thousand years. Wow. Yes. Desiccated, desiccated is a great term. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it, the blunt version would be it dried up. It dried up. That's where you could go race your sailed, you know, speed vessels or whatever we do with the salt flats and you know, Utah. Uh, <laughs> yes, you could. But the... In terms of imagery, right? I mean, is that what we're talking <laughs> that about? That is what we're talking about. But um, yeah. the other problem is that the deepest parts of the Mediterranean are a few miles deep, hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, the Calypso Deep, I think, and I'm not entirely certain about this, but it is at least uh, four or five miles. Wow. Right? Yeah, so that's not as deep as, say, the Marianas Trench, which goes down to seven, but it's still abyss, the environment. Right. Wild. Now, imagine that being exposed. Imagine all of the water evaporating. That's one of those things that's just really difficult. I don't like when you look at a body of water, it's hard to have the inherent it's assumption that this like cliff face continues downward <laughs> yeah. until like most beaches are fairly smooth, mm -hmm. right? But like I 
went on a kayaking trip in the fjords in Norway. And like really early on, somebody was like, you realize these are deep enough to hide a submarine in. <laughs> like that's what. <laughs> yes. And so it goes down even further than that peak. You can look up right there. And it was just, I spent the rest of that trip just going, Don't fall oh in. man, Don't fall I'm in. not thinking about the planet <laughs> the right way. But yes, I mean, if you look at the mouth of the Nile, there are canyons that go down about a mile uh, below what right. is now the shoreline. So the, mile, the Nile River cut canyons all the way down to the abyssal plain of the dry Mediterranean. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. The other thing is that there is no environment like that on Earth today. Huh. Um, because the atmosphere is going to be about um, at least 50% thicker than it is at sea level now. Now, that means that you have uh, a very thick atmosphere, you have a whole lot of continual sunlight and heat going in there, and it's a, it's a salt flat. That means that temperatures on the exposed abyssal plain in the summer would have gone up to about 80 degrees C. Wow. Which is close to boiling point. Now, so there is no environment like that now. And so part of that is a product of pressure, yes. right? Like it's just, it's just atmospheric pressure down there is, you know, it's a, it's, we use it to cook things up well, here. Well, the pressure helps to retain the heat, <laughs> the pressure. In itself. Yeah. But right, it would have yeah. been like Venus, right? not as bad as Venus, but we're not talking like an earth-like environment in the way that we consider one. So there would have been no animals. There would have been no plants. And if you um, abstract this out, right, if that was happening as recently as 5 million years ago in the Mediterranean, uh, mm -hmm. which is one relatively small part of the planet, you have to imagine that there have been transitions like this that were, uh, I'm trying to use the word catastrophic, but that doesn't feel right. Just uh, fantastic, right? Unbelievable, hard to imagine. And they've happened all over the planet for all of the planet's history, thousands and thousands of times in different places, strange things like this that seem impossible to us now because we'll never see a thing like that happen over our lifetime. A thousand years, we won't experience it, right? That's ancient time for us. Well, one other thing is that these events were not always slow. Hmm. So the Mediterranean did refill. It didn't refill slowly. Interesting. Um, <laughs> it was catastrophic. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Most likely what happened was that there was a river that emptied into uh the Mediterranean and into the dry plain um across from what is now southern Spain, right? And that the channel of this river accidentally got too close to the Atlantic coast. Huh. And you can see what's going to happen. This is called <laughs> capture. I don't know when a river does this. Yeah, right. We can model these things on a smaller scale with sand, which I think everyone can imagine, right? A dam gives out and it's just... Yes, boom. and this happened in a, the entire sea refilled in less than 100 wow. years. Wow. So this isn't, this isn't slow. That's incredible. Yeah, so you said something earlier that I think w it was apt in this point, or, or this, you know, sort of this part of the conversation, yeah. like... We have to consider geology and biology. And so like you, you said something earlier, you said uh, the planet was weathering. Like the idea that we take a thing that is so the weather, <laughs> right? Which is a messed up part of how we talk about climate mm -hmm. change. That's we don't want to pursue right now, I don't think. But like weathering is this giant thing that just like you can see happen if you put something out 
in your yard to rot, mm -hmm. but also it happens to the planet and things get worn down. And these sort of these, you end up with this, like when you consider the interplay of biology and geology on that scale, continuity just gets weird. And so you have these things where you're like, it was this way for a million years. <laughs> and then suddenly whoosh, filled in with water, everything that was in there yeah. was dead. <laughs> Like what, what, what just happened? And all those you know, dead whales floated <laughs> up again. Yeah, right. Wow. And started burping methane yeah, like yeah. we watch on YouTube for fun now. Like, <laughs> and it lowered global sea levels significantly as well. I think that it was right. about a five meter change. Don't hold me on that. But That's like um, all that water went back from the world ocean. Right. Yeah. And so I think what's crazy is we're at this point of the conversation about climate change, that's like, you don't even necessarily have to talk about the notion of geoengineering and the extent to which we are as humans causing problems. Mm -hmm. Like the, the change of perspective that I think you're talking about lives right at that point of like, it doesn't matter. The things are happening. We have this trend data. We've looked at these things. Like this is a problem for us, no matter who's causing it, we need to start thinking about it that way. And it kind of forces this philosophically almost spiritually uncomfortable realization of like, oh, we're part of this bigger yes. organism, right? Yes. That's sort of like, we can't get out of. So the disease dynamics are at play, whether it happens occasionally on a geological time scale or it doesn't. But it does seem to happen on that time scale, right? So we can learn a lot by looking at that Well, this, this has happened before. Um, uh, are you familiar with the oxygen crisis? The oxygenation event? No. Uh, Not at all. So. <laughs> I love the name, though. <laughs> so, so right now, we, um, we, we, we love plants. We love trees. We love things that photosynthesize. They're great, right? That, you know, that we love all of that. Um, they're the essence of these, you know, lovely natural processes, yeah. greening and we have national parks <laughs> yeah. to protect them. So we can just go look at them for free, yes. at least in the United States. Right. So, so <laughs> back a few billion years ago, there was no photosynthesis, none at all. The, the, there was a biosphere, right? Life just hadn't figured it out yet. No. Uh, you know. But now it works now real it well. Works well, <laughs> the problem is if you don't have any photosynthesis, you don't have any oxygen in the atmosphere. Oxygen is here as an artifact of photosynthesis. That's why if we find oxygen in the atmospheres of, say, exoplanets, it probably means there's life mm. there. Because you don't get free oxygen hanging around in the mm -hmm. atmosphere if you don't have life continually putting in. It just doesn't last. It oxidizes stuff. It's and very reactive, away. right? So it, it yes, forms other yes. molecules and life needs to pull it back out. Yes. Yes. So if we have 20% oxygen just hanging around in the atmosphere, that, that, that means that there's some mm -hmm. process continually dumping a lot of it back. Eating carbon dioxide and spitting the oxygen out so it, and, and using the carbon to like continue to build its stalks. Uh, right. right. And um, as you were saying, Brian, um, yes, oxygen is very reactive. Now... Oxygen is also very reactive to the components of living organisms. Hmm. Um, back then, uh, there was no oxygen. And then blue-green algae, cyanobacteria, suddenly developed this way of um, using carbon dioxide to build biological molecules, etc., making sugar, all of this. And this was great. The problem mm -hmm. was that this had this extremely toxic waste product, which was oxygen. 
So none <laughs> of the life then had any experience with there being significant quantities of oxygen in the atmosphere dissolving into their tissues, into the water, and all of this. Interesting. Now, yeah. And this caused the greatest mass extinction in history. Nearly the entire biosphere died. Apart from those organisms that were able to deal with the problem by developing methods to scavenge oxygen from inside their cells, and these methods later became what we call respiration, which right oh. now we use to generate energy, but back then was, you could say, a toxic waste removal mechanism. Right. Interesting. It's such a it's such an interesting way to put that perspective on it, right? Because you could tell that story with any sort of language. Uh, but in the context of what's going on now, it's important to see it that way. Right? It, you could look at that and just say that was how life evolved. But to put the perspective of no, they were producing a new they were producing trash, essentially, they were putting trash bags full of oxygen out in the atmosphere. Oh, yeah. yeah. And there was no trash man to come pick it up. <laughs> no, no. And the other thing, of course, is that they're absorbing CO2. Right. And we know, of course, that, that CO2 uh, uh, warms the Earth by trapping solar radiation, as we all know. What happens if you suck all the CO2 out of the atmosphere and dump a pile of oxygen in and then kill the entire biosphere? <laughs> right? Uh -oh. Bad things happen. Um, <laughs> because you don't have much respiration going on, and you have a pile of, of dead, rotting organisms, which aren't rotting that quickly at that point. So what ends up happening is that you've sucked all the carbon dioxide out, and you get cooling. You get a lot of cooling, and back then the entire Earth froze. It was the largest ice age ever, and um, it stayed this way for millions of years. This is called the Snowball Earth event. This probably happened wow. three times. This is all when life was single-celled at this point. It was before we mm. had uh, multicellular organisms. We're in this weird situation where I think we don't like to think of ourselves as just another organism in this chain, but like you can, mm -hmm. on a geological time scale, you can look at human behavior as roughly the same, like modus operandi as a, as a slime mold. It's like, I'm just, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, keep growing well, across is... this surface. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm going to grow towards resources and I'm going to cover, cover all the space eating them and so what you dumping them out and so what you mean when you say that they're doing the opposite of the plants is they're eating we're we we went and found stores of carbon to eat it mm -hmm. to do stuff with instead of just pulling it out of the atmosphere which has now kind of thrown this like there's a certain cycle you were talking about there that's like geological biological and they kind of offset one another in right sort of, so you know, processes realm at this point biology is doing a weird thing where we're sort of like we're gonna eat even more of it first <laughs> yeah, yeah. Usually the big problem has always been a pile of photosynthesis and nothing to eat the waste products. That's that's usually been the issue. Mm. Um mm. and so Interesting. Um so back then what ended up happening is you were talking about oil. Well that oil pretty much all got subducted down into the mantle. There's very little of that oil left, but but what because it was so long ago. But what did happen mm. um is, uh, have you heard of the mantle plume underneath Yellowstone National uh, Park? Yes. Well, I mean, I have in the terrifying context of it being like a super caldera that could blow <laughs> yes. up the whole planet at any right. moment. Right. Yes. Um, you, you would call it a mantle plume. Yes, mantle, a mantle plume. plume. Okay. Yeah. 
um, which is a, a large-scale current of magma that's coming up from down in the deep mantle and causing a sort of bulging mushroom effect, pretty much. Hmm. And um, there's a whole pile of carbon down there. And um, if that actually erupts out, you get a massive dump of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, right? That's not actually from oil. That's from deep down in the mantle. Okay. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. It's independent of the biosphere. That would just be happening anyway. And this was what ended the Snowball Earth event. A whole bunch of CO2 outgassed from volcanic eruptions. Outgassed. Outgassed, yes. <laughs> I'm seeing like the bog of, what's that for a uh, labyrinth? The bog of stench from the just burps all over the place. Fart noises. Right. Um, so you've got, in, in this context, it's interesting, right? Because they're two, they're two generally closed systems, but that occasionally interact with each other right you've got the yeah, core that's the fun part yeah yes um yes they're not it's not some sort of mutual feedback system mm -hmm. it seems kind of it seems almost a little bit random right i mean over a long enough period you can kind of consistently see we'll have volcanic eruptions they'll be outgassing but in the context of life as we know it volcanoes don't happen very often so a, a in a snowball earth scenario I'm imagining, I'm guessing that those periods lasted a very, very long time waiting for outgassing to happen naturally from that sort of closed system that doesn't usually interact with the yes. biosphere. And the important part, too, is that not any volcanic eruption will do. It has to be something called a flood basalt event. Huh. <laughs> a flood, a basalt, flood event. basalt event. And these happen, it seems, every, like... It's not very predictable, but certainly in like the high tens of millions of years. Wow. Um, so was the in Snowball Earth? I remember that being in that BBC special that I referenced. Um, it, was that it? Was that really a situation where it seems like the entire planet was encased in snow and ice? Yes, there are. Um, from that period, there aren't very many rocks left because there's a whole lot of subduction, and it was mm -hmm. billions of years ago. But there are tracks mm. of rocks that were encased in the bottom parts of glaciers scraping across rocks. And you, you can tell by these scrape marks. And you have these scrape marks mm. down on rocks that were pretty much near the equator at that time. Wow. That's wild. And so were we then... We. <laughs> we, we as, which is a fair is thing we. to say. Were yes. we, the organism yeah. of the Earth, was, was, were we... Uh, encased just for millions and millions. Sounds like tens or hundreds of millions of years, potentially, with the, the rareness of a, a flood a basalt event. Yes, this happened um, possibly three times as well. Um, wow. And I don't think hundreds, but certainly tens of millions. Yes. It's incredible, too, that uh, life persisted through all of that, too, right? Once it was in existence, uh, it's it made it through these dramatic shifts uh, that it also kind of caused, right? Yes. So within itself, within the it, it, it caused these changes that uh, almost caused its own extinction, but then it recovered and did it again and did it again. <laughs> yeah, so what I would say is it's quite hard to completely kill off a biosphere, but it's easy to really mess mm -hmm. it up. It's easy mm, to yeah. marginalize life. I think it's very difficult to entirely eradicate life on Earth. I don't really see how that could happen, unless we have, say, a Venus scenario. Mm. Uh, then you could do it, I think. But mm -hmm. 
what happened in this time too was that when uh, when you had enough CO2 back in the atmosphere and the melting started, the life at that point had evolved now to be able to deal with the oxygen issue. And once you can deal with the oxygen issue, you can use respiration the way we use it, mm. which liberates about 10 times as much energy as anaerobic mm. respiration, which was what there was before. So that meant that life, when it came back, was a lot more, you could say, high-powered, mm -hmm. right? And it was pretty quickly able to get, you know, to get that carbon down at that point. And now it, you, right. and now it was using, um, using it as a resource. Sorry, sorry, get the carbon back in. Sorry, and, I had that the wrong way around. Yes. And so that then gives rise to more modern biology as we are familiar with it now, right? Because the concept of animals being around was not part of this these stories for the most part that we've been talking no. about, right? Snowball Earth. If we're if we're back a billion years, uh, it was just yeah. Planned. On this scale, everything you see on planet Earth. The epic documentary it's huh. brand new <laughs> there are no cute fuzzy animals hunting each other in the woods <laughs> which is sort there of there were like, no plants either apart from uh that there were cyanobacteria right. which photosynthesize but they're single-celled algae what was the roughly I, I know these are these are numbers to just pull out but what roughly is the time frame of those different major uh, life events on Earth, right? There was a, a long period where there was nothing. Then there were small bacteria. Then there were plants of some sort. Trees came along. And it was, what what is that timeline roughly feel like? So 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 we've had the Earth has been around for about four point five billion years. Now we've had life on Earth for about four billion years at least, right? I think I think people keep discovering older life. Um, uh, <laughs> and there are some very old rocks in Australia. We, yeah, so we have undisputed evidence of life from about 3.5 billion, possibly going back 4 billion. And the Earth's about 4.5 billion. We're certainly not finding things that make us go, oh, no, that's we're wrong. No, <laughs> it always gets old older. It seems it got right. going it always gets older. <laughs> um, now, the, the fun part you, uh, though oh sorry did you want to say something can we, yeah i was gonna get weird on this a little bit here and ask your personal opinion uh because you don't necessarily get to ask personal opinions of scientists very often they have to stick with their data but do you think life evolved on earth or do you think life came to earth you mean like rode in on an asteroid and that's how we yeah. got our first single-celled organisms yeah because if okay. you talk about how how uh, fantastic these shifts are in our own biosphere and our own geology of the planet and life just continued through it. Uh, and, and we know you can send a lot of this stuff out into space and into, into cold experiences into hot experiences and, and it persists, right? So who's to say it didn't just so, arrive here? Um, I would say that um, now what will be relevant here um, is to talk about the difference between life and multicellular life the way that we experience now. Mm, mm -hmm. um, life Definitely, developed yep. on Earth or was introduced or whatever happened um, about probably about 4 billion years ago, pretty much the moment that the crust was cool enough and that you had liquid water. But that life did not evolve into mm -hmm. multicellular life until about 540 million years ago. This is a long time. You had a very long time where there was life, <laughs> yep. but 
the life was not, you say, as we know it. The life was bacterial <laughs> and algal. Sloppy. <laughs> just seeing just pools of slop, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, pools of slop, and also a whole lot going on in the ocean. So, so it seems that we may be biased because we may have some idea that you're going to have this smooth evolutionary process and get complex multicellular life early. But mm -hmm. we don't know whether it's very easy mm -hmm. to develop life up to a certain um, degree of complexity, you know, through evolutionary processes that could smoothly occur from mm -hmm. abiotic things. Mm -hmm. So. I think that that question is not uh, answerable either way at this point. I would say that I am not going to discount the possibility of what is often called panspermia, um, which is the idea that you have like resting spores of very simple mm -hmm. life forms going around. I would say also you were talking about life surviving right. in space, right? Um, we have to differentiate the survival of some kind of spore mm -hmm. that can sort of just sit there from life as in actual uh, uh, yeah. metabolizing, reproducing cells, because those cannot live in space. Right. right, something that's chemically alive while something in space. Something that can, it gets into yeah. a good environment, theoretically get going again. Yep. That can happen. That's a great, that's a great differentiation. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Mushrooms. I'll, I'll take that answer. So mushrooms <laughs> rode in on it. Mushrooms <laughs> rode in on an asteroid. Um, so, so the... <laughs> The place that I kind of want to go, like that it feels relevant to the engineering aspect of mm -hmm. what we tend to talk about. It's like, there's a, there's a higher level on the same, I think sort of, it's a similar perspective shift when thinking about technology and the idea of like, and it starts from that typical sort of pretentious academic place of like, let's break down the word, but literally technology is like, it's, it's the study of technique. Yes. So we think of it as gadgets, those stuff that humans have built that we use as tools to do other things. But like one can argue that a, an organism moving with less intent is still deploying technology. It's in the same space of you find a better way to utilize oxygen. And that is a technique, even if it's not directed by it's like, here's what biology just taught itself to do. And now it's working. Well, the plants weren't doing that. The things that ate the plants were doing. Yeah, exactly. That. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like, you know, and eventually it goes, I can use this mitochondria, like, and yes. you got respiration, <laughs> right? And so, but it, <laughs> mitochondria is a really good way of doing that. That's why I'm standing here. Well, at and that so, point, the mitochondria are independent organisms. Those got yeah, incorporated exactly. a lot later. They, yeah, right. mitochondria are the bacteria that learned how to do that inside us now. Yes. Um, but I want to take it to that place. Of, so now we have, we have gadgets, which we call technology that we're using to essentially just consume things more aggressively and at a greater scale on an ongoing basis. Like this gets us back to the geoengineering piece, right? Like it's a thing we've been doing for a long time, but we don't tend to think of it as geoengineering, but you're cutting a canal between two bodies of water. Like you mm -hmm. just built a thing that used to take a long time to happen otherwise. Yeah, we have a category problem with the things that we call geoengineering and the things that we don't. Right. We certainly do. We also don't give ourselves enough credit because we are talking about this now. No right. other organism in the history of the planet would be talking about this. Mm, They'd be mm -hmm. doing the thing you were saying about how the slime mold would do it, right? 
we right. call ourselves a plague on the planet, etc. Sometimes some people say this, right? This kind of general mm -hmm. attitude. Um, it's specific. It's very prevalent among environmentalists too, mm -hmm. certain groups, and um, but. We need to see that the fact that we can say this means we have far more insight than any other organism that has messed the planet up by doing too well. Hmm. And there have been mm -hmm. many times that this has happened. <laughs> right. So I would say as far as we can tell, no one, no organism has ever been through this uh, while possessed of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like self-awareness? Or like, what a sort would you of call second it? order insight. We can watch right, it yeah. from a perspective where we are watching what we are doing. It's like a, a introspection, perhaps, kind of. Right. Bit. Yeah. Uh, and it gets us to it's it's like everything I want to talk about to follow that rabbit hole further mm -hmm. starts to get into the philosophical space. You know, it's like we before we started recording, we were talking about Alan Watts and his sort of. My, my, one of my favorite ways of presenting this is like when you consider geological timescale and things like weathering becomes a verb instead of a thing you experience every day. <laughs> well, that is different, though, because uh, weathering is the process of rocks removing. CO2. Right. So yeah, that's yeah. a geological thing. Right, right. But when you look at biology, if you're going to step back to that same scale and you're just kind of watching the whole thing from this, you know, almost God level view. You're going, oh, that one's peopling. Yes, yes. Right? Like that's the way he presents it, right? It's like it's a thing that is happening on this rock and it's just sort of we're behaving the way that we're behaving. And while we are self-aware of it, it doesn't necessarily make us special. And you have to take into account this whole, you know, it's like, right. oh, that rock's peopling. Well, what's what's going to happen next? Why? Well, I, I really <laughs> like the way that you presented uh, our position as people um, within the organism of the earth because this whole conversation is, is interesting for me because it it's something that it it makes it so much harder to disconnect as a human and think of myself as different or special when I can look at the whole history of the planet and see these other organisms were doing similar things. We've run into this problem before. Uh, and I love the way that you framed it with a positive spin. We're not we're not something we think of ourselves as fantastic and powerful and amazing and inventing all this new stuff. But in a lot of ways, we didn't invent a new problem. We're just experiencing it again. And we get to be positive and, and affect it in a way that will prevent it this time if we want to, uh, if we can, <laughs> right? And, and I think that's a really beautiful way to look at it as opposed to, oh, we're a plague and we're polluting. We're, we're such, we're a terrible slime mold that's destroying the planet. No, we get to write poems about it and write songs and gather together uh, and change the behavior and change the biosphere, not for good or bad, but for, for how it can be right now for our life on Earth. Uh, and that's a really pretty way to look at it. And I, I really appreciated that perspective. Yes. And also thinking that we're especially bad is uh, the reflection of uh, thinking that we are uh, especially, you could say, good or separate mm. in some godlike way. It's the mm -hmm. same. It's just the mirror of it. Yes. So I, I think um, so a good example of this would be the way that we think, say, about agriculture mm -hmm. uh, in terms of geoengineering. We don't call agriculture geoengineering. 
we think mm. agriculture is mm -hmm. almost some sort of a noble thing, right? You know, mm -hmm. right? It's it's growing stuff that we need uh -huh. to do it so we can eat. Yes, right. Nobody. But there is no more environmentally destructive practice that we do than agriculture. It's hmm. if we are thinking about it in uh, the ways that we. Uh, well, in a lot of sets of any kind of like ecological ethics that involves preserving um, other organisms, agriculture is definitionally the worst thing. We remove everything else and grow one thing for food <laughs> and eat it. There's nothing right. worse if we're thinking that this is how, how it works and these are what the bad things are, right? Now, if anything, agriculture is more geoengineering than a whole lot of the other... Um, the other, the other uh, possible technologies. But it's large scale and low grade, so we don't think of it as harmful. Like, which, which to me is almost like a, it is to describe the problem with geological timescales, right? Like the idea of, oh, well, I'm just growing corn here. Like, what could possibly go wrong? Well, you do it 10 times in a row and things, things can go wrong. Oh, yes. Yes. So you're like, <laughs> we, we directly appropriate at least 30% of the primary productivity of, at least on land, for our own use. And it's going up. We, we just, uh, we monopolize it. So it's quite impressive thinking that we are getting to the point of uh, eventually using pretty much half of all the photosynthetic output of plants on land to grow our own mm. food and for other things like that. I uh, mean, if we want to maintain a growth rate, that stuff is going to be in the, in the future. Like we have to figure out an equilibrium on this rock or else it just one of somebody's got to stop growing <laughs> or some numbers got to stop going up. Right. It's just kind of how it works. What do you think? This is this is just tangentially related, but that's what I thought of. <laughs> what do you think of like uh, uh, projects like Soylent and stuff, and the extent to which they're trying to use like bioreactors and algae to spit out fats that we need, so we don't have to like factory farm? Yeah, I actually I I don't have a problem with Soylent at all. I I actually like these kinds of things. I, I think that these can be very helpful. Um... Uh, I have a good portion of my diet that is essentially just mix up the shit in a vat and yes. get it over with. So <laughs> yeah. I'm doing what I have to do today. Yes. That's breakfast for a. <laughs> so Certainly, I for if sure we don't, approve of if, it, right? If humans don't feel they need to, for some reason, eat large quantities of meat, it would help us a lot mm -hmm. in, in many right. ways. Um, oh, man. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, I feel like the only thing that's kind of left to hit is the notion of geoengineering in the sort of very real scary capacity way, which is like, you have to consider that small nation states with very big bombs, like are facing the prospect of being underwater. Yes. That um... means those people either have to move. Like we've talked to people about this in the context of like, uh, uh, Brian and I grew up in uh, Baltimore, which is on a bay. So there's a, you know, sort of a, like a wetland peninsula associated with it. And so you watch a lot of the politics right now of like, here is a number of people that we know will be displaced in the next 10 years and we have to deal with it. And it's, it's, it's interesting watching sort of the coping and the extent to which there's geoengineering. Cause they're like, well, we'll put up dikes and then we'll just continue to live there, which is geoengineering in more desperate scenarios. There are ways to cool down the globe by 
blowing a whole bunch of ash in the air. Yes. Uh, um, which seems problematic. So like, what's okay? What's okay to do? We can build the dikes, but we can't, or should we move the people? Or it just immediately it's a mess. So, <laughs> so yeah. So we should talk about some more, some more geologically recent things that can be helpful with yeah. um, with this kind of thing. Mm. Um, so you are right that there are forms of geoengineering that would be very bad and that we shouldn't do. Most of these involve <laughs> trying to cool the earth without addressing CO two levels. Mm. Most of these involve things like atmospheric aerosol injection, which, by the way, would be the cheapest way of doing it. Hmm. It would be surprisingly cheap and surprisingly efficient. We could really deal with the temperature issue that way. Uh, this would be spraying, say, sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere um, as aerosols. We know this because we get global cooling every time that there's a large volcanic eruption and it's measurable. Hmm that this happens, right? Now, the problem is that doesn't address ocean acidification, which is an equally bad problem to the temperature issue. Um, we need to actively remove CO2 uh, because we've already passed 400 parts per million. Um, and if we look back historically, that is associated with the majority of the ice caps melting for the level that it's already at. Hmm. Um, we have this idea that CO2 has a set residence time in the atmosphere, but that's actually erroneous. Uh, that's dependent on a whole lot of contingent processes. And, and this is relevant to what we were talking about before, right? We're talking about, say, mass extractions of CO2 from the atmosphere from photosynthesis. Well, those haven't happened by any kind of predictable way. Like there was one time when the Arctic Ocean was landlocked and a bunch of floating plants grew in there in the Eocene and hmm. sunk down. And, 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 and sequestered that. That was called mm. the Azola event. There was the event in the Carboniferous when trees evolved and, um, and produced a whole bunch of wood and fungi weren't able at that point to digest the wood. And so the wood just built up and got buried and became coal, which we are now putting back, which is the same carbon removed back then. Mm. If we go more recent, uh, say um, in the Ice Age, um, which we are still in, by the way, but in the last glacial period of the Ice Age, because right now the temperatures are uh, way abnormally uh, low. So, oh, yes. Yeah, so if we look in, in the history of the Earth, it is not normal for there to be ice caps on the poles at all. Uh, this hmm. is, yeah, yeah, this brings a bit of perspective here. For the majority of the history of Earth, say the entire Mesozoic period, right? Say the, the you know, the period where the dinosaurs were around. Uh, there were no ice caps on the poles. There was no ice on Earth except perhaps on high mountains, right? Now, this is a period of about 150 million years. So this period went on a lot longer than it has been since the dinosaurs went extinct, for, for some perspective. The dinosaurs were around a lot longer than the time since they've been gone. And throughout that whole period, there were no ice caps. There were not significant ice caps until about, say, 20 million years ago. Right. So, 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 so it would be quite easy for us to trigger a process in which the ice caps entirely melt. And it would be quite easy for that to happen pretty quickly. And that would be a snap back to the default state of the earth. So, hmm. um, we, we do need to do something about the CO2 we already have. And even if we stopped emissions entirely right now, it wouldn't be enough. Because the concentration we have now, if we look back, correlates to temperatures warmer than we have now. So geoengineering in that sense is necessary. Carbon drawdown is necessary. I digressed a little bit here. Um, and it was a great digression. No, it's perfect, <laughs> though, because I think thinking about it that way is like it gets us back to the 
the the the Mediterranean, like the image of the Mediterranean Sea, just kind of going <laughs> whoosh and filling back up. Like we also have record that things happen with a within a hundred year period occasionally on the yes. Earth once the event trigger happens, and we have data yes. to say that we are getting close to that. And when you think of it like a snapback, it's a way easier to imagine this graph that goes shoop and then climbs back up slowly and then shoop and then climbs back up slowly. And it's weird to see on a geological time scale, but it's like, again, the fact of what we're doing with carbon that is potentially accelerating it is part of the problem, but it's also part of a different conversation. And that different conversation doesn't mean we don't need to keep talking about no. like how we behave with carbon otherwise. But it also seems to me to say that yeah, 100% we also have to figure out how to pull it back out of the air. So we also got to build science. New science has to happen as well. So Yeah, this is a practical issue. And the other problem is we tend to conflate um, um, things going badly for mm -hmm. us with catastrophic mm -hmm. consequences mm -hmm. to the biosphere in the long term. And those aren't the same thing. So we have these projections that, you know, Earth will go into some Venus state and, uh, you know, you'll have this runaway right. effect with methane class rates coming out in, in, in the Siberian areas and all of this. Um, uh, there's not really much evidence that the methane catastrophe is a seriously likely thing to happen. Um, I won't get into it now because that's a whole right. conversation. <laughs> but it, the preponderance of evidence suggests that that's pretty unlikely. Um, the tendency to think that if industrial civilization, the way it's it's set up now, it, it, it is made much more difficult by, by by climate change, that that is the same thing as uh, the biosphere uh, catastroph uh, catastrophically failing in some way or us going into a Venus scenario <laughs> is actually a little bit hubristic. It's saying that if we get messed up, that's the same thing as life getting messed up. Well, it's it's not. And um, you were talking about things happening quickly, right? Um, have you heard of the Younger Dryas? No. Okay, so, so the Younger Dryas happened about 14,000 years ago, 14,500 years ago. It went on for a few thousand years. Now, the last glacial maximum was about just over 20,000, actually 26,000 years ago. So in the Younger Dryas period, there were humans. Also, just before this happened, the humans had been starting to do agriculture, like just beginning. Um, uh, the, the process that led to agriculture had begun. So um, this then got frozen <laughs> because a lot of things got frozen, then restarted a few thousand years later. Now, the Younger Dryas was a temporary return to glacial conditions that didn't go on very long. It went on a few thousand years. When the Dryas ended, and probably also at the beginning, temperatures rose by multiple degrees, um, up to five degrees, certainly more than two, which is our, our current, um, you know, maximum to avoid catastrophe. That's uh, uh, usually there's a consensus. Another conversation there. Uh, within about, say, 20, 30 years, wow. maybe 50 years. That is incomprehensible to us. But humans saw this. Right. Humans like us saw this. <laughs> Now the baseline temperature was a lot lower, but imagine the temp the sea level increase as a result yeah, of that happening. We're saying maybe like tens of meters. It's interesting that a lot of the most of the cause of our current situation is also what ultimately is the problem when it is messed up, right? It's the cities and the infrastructure that are built on the oceans 
Uh, it, it is the is the areas where people live now in a way that's so fantastically uh, advanced, even even in third world countries compared to uh, early farming cultures of humans. We can't just pick up and move. Right. Right. And no. so it's and we tend to pick the very worst places <laughs> for the <laughs> like problem. River mouths. Yeah. Right. Things. Right. <laughs> right. So it's it's. Back back then, early humans uh, wouldn't have experienced the same problem, and they wouldn't have no. necessarily even recognized it. Right? They oh, our farm stopped working here. Uh, we better get on the move again. Like the stories that uh, we've heard from earlier generations. But now, uh, if the water level rises too high in Miami Beach, the entire city becomes. But yeah. Back then you couldn't. Sorry. Yes, right. Yes, yeah. It's interesting. So it's it's the it's the everything comes back to that same source. The technological advancements are what we fear to lose and what causes the problems. It's it's such an it's such a bizarre situation to be in. It's a it's uh, a bit of a trap. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, you know, that started agriculture is also a trap. Once you start doing that, your population increases and then you can't right. go back to hunting and gathering because a bunch of people die. So you're yeah. locked in. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's the story of technological advancement. Yeah. Uh, I think it, no, however you apply that technology, whether it's biological technology that developed uh, autonomously or however you want to think about it, once you move forward in time with that technology, you kind of get stuck with it. Um, so we're uh, we're kind of getting towards the end of the episode. I'm curious what you with all of this that you're aware of and, and, and clearly you're passionate about uh, affecting change in the world to make yes. a difference here, what is it that should be done? Both kind of technologically, are there particular solutions that you're a big fan of? And also, uh, are there aspects of humanity that we should reconsider? So technologically, um, I out of the current candidates for CO2 drawdown, I am inclined more to iron, oceanic iron fertilization than some of the other methods. Hmm. So oceanic iron fertilization, are you familiar with this or should I go into it? No, okay. please, please share. So right now, algae in the oceans are mainly limited by a lack of iron. Uh, that's their limiting factor is iron. If you increase mm. iron by only a small amount, uh, you would then enable uh, the, a lot more phytoplankton in the oceans, and that phytoplankton would then be able to remove a lot of carbon from the atmosphere mm -hmm. if it is in places where it goes down into the abyss, like where you have downwelling. Because mm -hmm. you know, obviously if something right. eats it, then, then you've just put it back again, right? Right, just recycle. Right, right. so we need it to go down. Um, it looks like phytoplankton concentrations have declined by about uh, one percent a year for like for the last hundred years, um, and this is worrying. Um, the natural mechanism is that you have winds which then deposits iron-rich dust in the oceans. This is the analog here. This happened in the ice age because everything was a mm -hmm. lot drier, and it was one of the factors that contributed to keeping the ice caps there. Um, mm. You wouldn't need much iron. You could do this with, um, say, uh, a number of, say, oil tankers full of iron sulfate and then just spreading this yearly in areas of the ocean where you had downwelling. 
The also advantage of the other advantage of this is the side effect is you have increased food fish populations, which is okay. But of course, you don't want to do it purely mm -hmm. for that reason, because then you 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 get rid of the carbon drawdown, right? Reason, because then you're just doing that. So you want to mm -hmm. do it in areas mm -hmm. that aren't coastal areas. And there have been experiments with this, and um, small amounts of iron can produce plankton blooms that are visible from space, um, was, which is quite impressive. I was just going to say, to what extent can we test this on a small scale before we just go <laughs> dump tankers and they go, oh no, too cold. Too yes. Cold. yes. <laughs> well, it's unlikely we would be able to put too much in. I, I think that the current estimates of we could offset perhaps about 20% of current emissions. But, you know, between 20 and 20%. And then people say, it said that this, this means it doesn't work. And that, you know, but that would be an unrealistic demand, right? 20% of total emissions right now is a very good thing, right? Assuming mm -hmm. that we're bringing them down to zero net emissions, which mm -hmm. we need to do anyway. Right right <laughs> regardless i mean I, I think for sure our our perspective on this is uh we, yeah. all hands on deck yeah we got to yes, kind of exactly. do everything right right like there's not no and i think there are the other things we should so do big scale that it's kind of like yeah we should limp into that one maybe we need mm -hmm. direct air capture <laughs> and we need um sequestration yeah. of terrestrial biomass mm. um we need awesome. all of that the one thing we shouldn't do is aerosol injection hmm. because then you still get the ocean acidification, which messes up the marine biosphere. Mm. Um, aerosol injection, you were talking about bombs earlier, right? Um, aerosol injection is cheaper than bombs. Y you just need a, a fleet of about like, like 10 airliners spraying an aerosol. Now you're talking about small countries with bombs. What I'm worried about is let's say that you have uh, a heat wave of the kind that we have had in the Middle East, say, a, a, a few years ago, and that's been happening repeatedly. I think it actually happened last year as well, um, where you have temperatures going up into the 120s. Let's say that instead of in a dry place, you have that happening in a place with high humidity. Now, if that happens in a place with high humidity, people will drop dead, obviously, from the heat. Right now, heat waves cause excess mortality, and you see, you know, the statistics of people mm -hmm. killed by heat waves are not visible as it's happening mm -hmm. in the same way. They're people who had medical conditions that led to them dying, with, uh, with that being tied later to being related to the temperature, right? Mm -hmm. Mostly. If you have high humidity and temperatures of that, people will just drop dead from the heat and it will be obvious. If that is obvious and you get mm. basically a mass casualty uh, situation from a heat wave, that country is then going to, the, the government in, the, in that place will then be pressured hugely by the, by the constituent, by the population to do something about the problem. And let's say this happens somewhere like Pakistan or something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, this could happen and those, they, they would have the capability to, to put sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere and to cool the planet. This could be done. It wouldn't be that difficult. The problem with doing that is if you haven't addressed the carbon issue, then you're locked in because you have to do it every year forever. Because the moment you stop, the temperature mm -hmm. shoots up. Mm -hmm. um, this has caused mass extinctions before. You've had volcanic eruptions dumping CO2 in. They've also dumped aerosols. The aerosols have gone out before the CO2, and a pile of life has died for this reason, because you get this, mm. uh, this uh, uh, whiplash effect from the cooling followed by a sudden huge degree of warming. This is connected to the Permian extinction, which was the largest extinction mm. in the history of multicellular life, at least. Um, 
And I, I'm not so much worried that we'd end up in a situation where we'd have some kind of uh, you know, mass human die-off. Uh, I would worry, though, that we'd get locked into a situation where all we're doing is increasing the progressive degradation of the biosphere, and we're stuck in another situation where we just um, got some technological mm -hmm. band-aid that mm -hmm. is not a long-term solution. Right. I think the idea of sustainability is an important thing yeah. to be chasing yes. up and down yes. at the scale of, of inquiry. So we need to here. start yeah, getting the carbon out right? before something like that happens so what do you think people the average person should be doing right now because these are these are huge these are I huge think... initiatives that are being researched and, and tackled by governments uh potentially sometimes sometimes not uh but what's the what's the right attitude for an individual to have right now i think that the average person should be doing their best not to contribute on an obscene level to the uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to, to adding CO2. So I think it's a good idea right. to reduce or eliminate meat consumption. It's a good idea to mm. uh, not burn large amounts of uh, of petrochemicals, uh, not not mm. use cars and that, that dump piles of CO2 to minimize all of these things. But and you know, these are the usual things. But I don't think that these things should be conceived in terms of personal austerity or minimization, because I think that mm -hmm. that approach is, uh, is, uh, is doomed uh, in the long run. I think that if we think of this as something that can be solved purely through personal austerity, uh, we're not going mm -hmm. to get anywhere, right? Yep. Um, so, so there is this uh, idea too that geoengineering is some kind of moral hazard, or that we shouldn't do it because then it might mean we won't feel obligated to reduce emissions in other ways, say, or something like that. Now, or to reduce personal emissions too. But the problem isn't really um, attributable to the emissions of uh, the carbon footprints of individual people in isolation from the larger system that they're a part of. Yeah, and, and technically, the um, there's nothing evil or bad or wrong with producing carbon and emitting it into the atmosphere. We do it all day long as people. The problem is just that we don't know how to take it out fast enough right now. So there's there's a potential future where we can still have all of our shiny toys. We just need a few new toys that help offset what the what the old ones have done. Well, we don't uh, want internal combustion engines. Well, they're silly. I mean, in the long run, they're silly. And they... right, well, for sure. <laughs> so this gets us to another rabbit hole that I feel like we're going to have to okay. have you on for another episode if we want to do it. But like uh, Brian, uh, can we talk about Chris? Chris is. I mean, we could just say your brother. Yeah, we can talk Brian. about my brother, a uh, regular listener. He's he's a he's an engineer at a nuclear plant, so we have a lot of very in depth conversations about how nuclear power works. Um, there's an aspect of this that's just never mind how the power works, but there's an aspect of this that's like we have also watched the narrative of nuclear power play out, and it started with a really destructive bang, and so everyone is sort of afraid of it, but it's also kind of verifiably like the best we can do for generating power right now without contributing to the the yes. the carbon problem at least there are other byproducts and they're problematic i'll take them oh um, so would i no i don't have a uh, but I, like I'm, that's it's uh, nuclear power it's, is definitely part of uh, the uh, set of uh, right it's interesting um 
but it also it, it gives us a window on this is why i think there's a whole separate episode in there but it gives us a window onto the sort of yeah. uh, social side of it which is like okay how do, how do how do we have to make sure people react to this new technology that we need to put out there because if they associate it with mass casualties then they'll just cut it down even if it's the best solution for uh yeah. solving certain aspects of this problem and the mass casualties associated with not dealing with the carbon problem are far greater than any mass casualties that have occurred due to nuclear <laughs> technology right uh anyway thanks for coming Thank on you. and yeah. talking about this stuff this is great uh and thanks to dean thanks for dean to dean for uh yeah this is a really fun conversation i appreciate you taking the morning to uh to mm -hmm. chat with us patrick and uh thanks as always to our supporters who throw us as little as a buck a month to help keep this thing going. You can go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com if you want to throw in over there. Uh, Patrick, anywhere, we'll link to the articles and stuff that we talked about in the show notes if people want to follow that rabbit hole. Is there anywhere else people should uh, look you up? Yeah, so I have a book called Alkalite Shores, which is a book of, um, it's poetry, but it's um, mm -hmm. it's related to this subject, certainly. Oh, very cool. Which is stuff I've written over the last 15 years or so, which came out about two weeks ago, and it's for sale on small press distribution. Um, so that's one thing. Oh, that's um, wonderful. So it's poetry in this space of... of climate science and geology and history of the earth not or? specifically climate science but certainly geology and history of the earth yes very cool um, what an interesting combination yes and i love that uh, the uh yeah, so it's called alkali shores and um it's small press distribution and um the uh, address for that is uh, is www.spdbooks.org and um so yeah you can find it there very cool i love it i'm gonna order a copy of that i really want to i really want to embrace and discover and share more uh creative art in this area right there's 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 education around it there's uh and there's beauty in it as well right i think we we get caught up in the the story of like save the polar bears and save the forest, which is nice, but there's like, there's a lot of other beauty in this space, right? There's the history of the planet. There's the technology that maybe has caused this problem too, but some of the technology that is going to save mm -hmm. the day. Uh, and so this is cool. I like, I like that. I just want to say one very, very quick final thing about what you just said. And yeah. this maybe is something that we could talk about later or in another do. episode or whatever, is that um, it's not often known, but tropical forests, especially, well, tropical forests right now, and this may be partially because of human degradation, are net CO2 emitters. Oh, wow. This is not often recognized. <laughs> Northern forests, like like uh, like Siberia mm -hmm. and and Canada, those are not because stuff doesn't rot. Stuff just sits there. Yeah. yeah. Tropical forests, though, the cycle is sufficient uh, that none of that really gets requested. They're useful in a whole lot of other ways, but they're not useful for CO two drawdown. Not the way they currently are. So this is an example of the kinds of problems we get led into when we believe simplistic things. Totally. Yeah, there is nothing right. simplistic about this conversation. Uh, this is like the most complicated uh, issue to ever be discussed. And so, so this episode was on shrimps and geological timescale. <laughs> I think the next one will be uh, power generation in tropical forests. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for thanks again for hanging out. Thank you. Uh, this is Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. I'm Patrick. Take it easy, everybody.